In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalysts podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst podcast, Mr. Kevin Nodstein. Hello, Carla. Happy to be here. Hey, so glad to have you here. We had so much fun on the last podcast. We kind of dove down a little bit more into these. Uh, the If you haven't heard the first podcast, it's how to lead like a boss. And we talked about the seven sources of authority. And I'll just take a moment here to introduce Kevin and give you his background and the reason why. Uh, we should be listening to what he says on this particular um, topic. He spent 21 years in active duty as an officer in the Air Force, and he worked with these special ops air crew that flew a mission, and it was the same mission that he flew in Afghanistan and Iraq, and now teaches these other special ops teams and air crew how to find the bad guys and tell the good guys where they're at. So if you think about the Bin Laden raid and how they have uh, the stack is what they call it, uh, his particular aircraft that he flies and and trains uh, as an instructor, the crew, the mission crew is called an MC-12 and that is at the top of the stack. And so he is also one of the co-founders of the People Catalyst and Kevin is a prover shaker. <laughs> and what that means is main prover. <laughs> if you notice the, how loud I said it, he's an uber prover, but he also has a secondary core nature of work as a shaker and likes to come up with ideas. He's his own worst enemy in his brain sometimes. <laughs> idea, bang, idea, bang. Right? And we contrast this with Carla, who is the uber mover, who wants everything done yesterday. No. all right so for today what we're going to be talking about is how to work as a team like a boss and now there are 10 pieces that kevin's going to walk us through on this and it would have been too long of a podcast so we are going to break up we will do five here today and then next week we will go through another five just to make it digestible uh, so that you can use these 10 different ways to work as a team like a boss. All right, Kevin, take it away. All right. Uh, What we're going to do on these 10, where this comes from, is uh, crew resource management is what they call it in the military. And and of course, uh, the military has to have specific names of everything. And these ones are the human factors traps. I you so. just gotta love how the military like <laughs> names things, right? It's like it's gotta have some secret way of knowing this and needing an acronym. It's hilarious. I've had a lot of fun going through some of their <laughs> training manuals. So the, this particular one, they call them traps, and basically it's it's ways, of, uh, it's challenges to people working together as a team, and it's things that you can identify. It doesn't always work out. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> we would At be out of business if it did. I guess. <laughs> Every once in a great while, somebody might have one of these 10 issues going on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and as we get into them, we're going to have some stories of talking about different ones and some from the military and some other places. Hopefully, we have a lot of fun doing this. Well, the, the first one we're going to talk about is it's uh, what uh, we like to refer to uh, in the Air Force. They call it excessive professional courtesy. There we go again. I love these names. This is great. And what is it that's going on? It's, it's your, it's you, you're not, you don't have a willingness to call out the boss when something is wrong. 
And they're actually saying, you know, in the military, we're trying to teach the pilots, hey, when you're flying an airplane, just because they're the boss, you should still be able to call them out. And yes. I've got a really good example of this uh, from the flying world. And I'm sure you can think of some from the, from the uh, business world as well. But from the flying world, I had one day, I was a young co-pilot, uh, a young guy first starting out. And I was in the right seat of a plane called the C-130. And my, uh, on the ground, my supervisor, my direct boss, happened to be the aircraft commander that day. So he's in the left seat of the plane. So I have uh, me sitting there, my boss in the left seat. Now we're flying as a formation and the aircraft in front of us that was leading the formation had what we called the group commander. This is a bird colonel. It was my boss's 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 boss. Okay. They have a lot of bosses. <laughs> it's the hierarchy, you know, just like <laughs> America. <laughs> you know, so basically we have, uh, we have the COO up there in the lead plane and I'm the mail clerk down in my plane. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so uh, we're flying and we're flying at night. And we're doing a training mission. So we do a lot of training, and we're uh, we're training of how to drop, um, how how to do an airdrop of people out of your aircraft at night. Now instead of people, we actually had sandbags this night. So we had a fifteen pound sandbag that we we're going to it's simulate uh, of people jumping out of the plane. Well, we're flying along directly behind our lead aircraft at night, and to do the drop, we had to descend. We had to go down almost 2,000 feet to get to a lower altitude so we have an accurate drop going, going over the drop zone. Well, lead aircraft initiates it and says, okay, time to descend. Let's go down. And we start our descent. Well, the lead plane with the equivalent of the COO, the bird colonel up there, he, didn't, he only went down 500 feet, and he leveled off exactly 1,000 feet but higher than what he was supposed to. So we were continuing. And you guys down. are both dropping bags? Yes. That would be bad. We're, we're, we're planned to. Now we always brief up. We had provisions that you can call what we call a no drop to say, hey, there's something wrong. Don't drop. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we continued our descent. We get down close to drop altitude. And I look at the plane in front of us. And I, we could see him. It was a nice clear night. And and I said, hey, and I'm talking, I'm in the right seat. I'm talking to my supervisor next to me. And I said, Okay, hey. tell us what being in the right seat means, because some people might not know what that means. Uh, the co-pilot. Yeah. Or, or the first officer. And uh, the, the man in charge is in the left seat. That's the aircraft commander. And so here I am, the co-pilot, uh, uh, doing other duties while he's flying the plane. Well, I brought it up and I said, hey, lead leveled off. He goes, yeah, I think they did. I said, they're not coming down any further and they're about to drop. And he goes, yeah. I think you're right. I said, he's about to drop a sandbag and we are now out of position and well below him. And we're about to have a sandbag come right in one of our engines. <laughs> like a good bad scale. That yeah. would be bad. Yes, that would be bad. And, and he said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and climb back, back up. So we climbed back up to our altitude, up to his altitude. We matched his and, uh, but we didn't say anything to them. Now he's just dropping a sandbag, but it could be dangerous for, uh, you know, if we were actually dropping personnel, we could put them in the wrong place if we're dropping them from the wrong altitude. Mm. But we didn't say anything to the plane in front of us. And they went across and they dropped their sandbag and we called a no drop and didn't drop our sandbag because we weren't in the right position. Well, after the sortie, we get into the debrief and the group commander, the, the man in charge of everything was going around the room and we went through, uh, it got to that point, and he goes, now, you guys no-dropped. Why did you no-drop on that? And still, my supervisor isn't saying a word about it. And I'm looking at him, and I was just wondering what is going on here. And that finally, I spoke up, and I said, well, sir, you were 
exactly a thousand feet above your drop altitude. And the, uh, at first he didn't believe it. And then his navigator says, you know, that makes sense based on our drop score and where the sandbag fell. And, uh, and right after that, the command, the commander said, well, why didn't any of you tell me something was wrong? And, and the answer was excessive professional courtesy. My, my commander, my aircraft commander right next to me was showing excessive professional courtesy. He didn't want to call out the boss for this uh, potentially dangerous situation. Wow. I bet you what? that might even be a little bit harder in, in, uh, in the military than it is just because the formalities than in business, but somebody that can utilize this. I mean, you just effectively sink your entire team if you are using that excessive professional courtesy. And the other side of it is you have to agree to it. That's why we're going through all of these different steps, because if your team is trained and you are trained, you can actually just point at that and say, you know, this is the pitfall that you ran into that was keeping our team from working to its ultimate, you know, uh, performance. And so when you understand that these are the 10 things that you need to take a look at that are going to affect your team negatively and or positively. And what I mean by that is if you know it's excessive professional, what, that needs a better name. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to call out your boss on something, then you have to have the agreement that it is okay to call out the boss on that thing. And so you have to go both ways. Like if, if you're focusing on, hey, why didn't you call me out? It's like, well, that would probably, you know, depending on what the culture of the company is and, and how, what's going to happen if you call out the boss, right? That's just as important to manage before you're in that situation instead of getting upset that somebody didn't call you out. Yep, you're exactly right. You have to create that culture where people understand that it is okay to uh, call people out when something is potentially wrong. Yes, and except it's like there's a way to do it. My dad used to always say, you can tell me anything, Carla, but you better mind the way you tell it to me, yes. <laughs> right? So like, for instance, if you know you need to call someone out, that doesn't mean you call them out in front of 50 people. Like every scenario is going to be different, right? But what he was saying is you can tell me I'm wrong, but think about how you're telling me I'm wrong, right? Or have a process by which you do it. There's this really cool process we teach. Um, it's called the Hootie Method. <laughs> okay, Kevin, next one. Next one, halo effect. This is another uh, item that can, that can mess things up that you have to watch out for. Now, what the, now actually, the, this isn't strictly to the military. There's a book that came out in 1920 that first talked about this halo effect. And what it is, is when, an in, um, when somebody does really great at one thing, so you, you assume that they're going to be great at something else. You know, they said, oh, they flew this plane really, really well, and now we're going to transition them over to a different airframe, and we assume that they're going to do an awesome job in this airframe based on their past performance in something that may or may not be related to the same type thing. Yeah, that can, that can also be for the perception of companies. Uh, we did, Alan and I did a review on good to great, what was awesome about the book, but what was missing uh, because the companies didn't do that well. But when that book was written, everyone was like, wow. And the title of the podcast, if anybody wants to go back and listen to it, is good to grave um, because the companies that were identified, I think there was like 13 of them. A lot of them did really horrible. And even like Kodak was one of them and a few other ones that went away completely. But the one that I think of when we did the research on, and I read the book, 
was Cisco Systems. So they were huge and they were just growing like gangbusters in the 90s during that tech boom. And all the reports on Cisco Systems were, oh my gosh, you've got a masterful strategy and your acquisition ability to grow by acquisition and you have a superb customer. I mean, they were just like, everyone was like, invest in this company, invest in this company, invest in this company. And then the tech bubble hit. And literally the same exact people were like, they have a horrible strategy, right? They're not, they're, they don't know what their customers want. And it's like the same people have the exact opposite thing to say, right? And of course, Cisco Systems did turn around and they're still a big uh, tech company today. However, they were the same company, right? So you have to think just be, I mean, it was the same company. So that halo effect that happens, it says, oh, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. It can also happen just in the shift of your perception of a product, of a company as well. So there's a lot of ways to look at the halo effect. Um, and one of the other things that makes me think of is, uh, the iPhone, everybody said, oh, the iPhone's going to be the best thing since sliced bread because why? Because the I, what was that thing called? iPod. The iPod did the, so well. Yeah. The iPod did so well. And so there's different applications. So contextually you can apply the halo effect to a company's product, a, a you know, a company in looking at their entire you know, strategic plan and, and what they're doing, but then you can also be selling yourself on one of those things on either side of it, by the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you that's really interesting in the military when you're a pilot, everyone thinks, Oh, you can fly that plane. So you can fly any plane or, and that <laughs> it's even more than that because the missions are all different. Oh, and I can go even deeper than that, but we don't have time for those. I'm sure you can, Mr. Prover. <laughs> Believe me, Kevin can always go uh, deeper and go into more detail without even thinking. But that is why he is our lead prover on the team. So, okay, what's next? Uh, next one, passenger syndrome. Now, pa uh, passenger syndrome. Uh, okay, layman's now? term. Pat, so you're <laughs> sitting around doing nothing, twiddling your thumbs? Yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay. There you go. That could also Twiddle be called your thumb syndrome. See, I'm going to rewrite all their <laughs> training books. <laughs> uh, well, we talked earlier about when you know, uh, another name for this is what uh, we sometimes refer to as the co-pilot syndrome. Well, earlier you were asking about right seat versus left seat in an airplane. The right seat is the co-pilot or the first officer in this in the civilian world, and the left seat is the aircraft commander. Well. When you're in that right seat, if you got somebody that is running the show and they've got it all taken care of, or if they're kind of overbearing personality and and they're like, and just an Uber driver and doing stuff, well, it's really oh, that reminds me of when um, you told me a story about when the fighter pilot, which is a single person aircraft, typically, then you have to then put them into the crew world and the 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 mentality of just tell a story you probably have a whole bunch of them but that i think that's really interesting to think about even moving culture to culture within a division of a company there could be an issue with that uh well uh, uh the uh, the story that i think you're talking about there is actually a little more halo effect where a guy was like hey i'm an uber uh, i'm great at this other airframe and i'm moving into a crew uh, aircraft and and i'm teaching the guy crew 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 and at the end of the day he goes if I'm the one that's flying the plane, why do I need to brief anybody else about what I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. It wasn't that one. It was something about like going a whole sortie and never saying a word or something like that. 
Oh, that was that's a whole another topic one. That's, <laughs> uh, that's a whole different one. <laughs> well, so just share with us then the mentality of the crew versus the fighter and why that is so. It's like it, it, well, it's not you know, just oh, you're a pilot. We're gonna so. work on this. I, I got a good. I've got a good one that's gonna work on this passenger syndrome. And actually, it's uh, it's one that when I was flying one day, if I would have been in, uh, in the passenger syndrome, it could have been bad. There you go. That's it, good. And uh, what happened, we're doing a takeoff and we're, we're training like we do a lot of times. We're, uh, we're training if we were taking off from a short field. Now to put this in perspective, we're flying a C-130 and it weighed about 130,000 pounds. Now a normal a takeoff roll for a plane like that, you have a runway that's about a mile long or one to two miles long. What we're practicing, what if your runway is less than a half mile long? and you have to take off in that situation. So we're on this runway that is actually about a half mile long. And uh, so we run the engines up, we got full power and holding the brakes. And you know, it's kind of like a race car sitting there at the starting line waiting to go. And we call it brake release. And we got full power and the plane starts rolling down the runway and it's moving kind That's of gotta be fun. It, it is. <laughs> Just to be blunt, it is. And, uh, but now on this day, the pilot in the left seat that was flying the plane doing this, all of a sudden his, the seat, well, its position, the tracks gave loose and his seat slid all the way back. And it slid so far back that he's holding his arms straight out as far as he can and he couldn't even reach the controls of the plane. Oh, that would be <laughs> on a good bad scale, that would be bad. Because the two things what are the two times that are most risky when you're taking off and when you're landing, probably, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's the most risky parts on flying a plane. And here we are taking off on this half mile long runway. And all of a sudden, the pilot can't even touch the controls. Now, if, if I would have been doing the passenger syndrome and just sitting over there going, oh, he's got the plane, I'm, everything is fine, uh, it could have been catastrophic. We would run off the side of the runway or something like that. That yeah, seems awfully power. short for a 130,000-pound plane. That's what we trained to. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, In training, see, guys, this is why training is really important. Right. And, uh, and on that one, I was in the seat and I actually had my hand on the yoke, my right hand on the yoke, my left hand on the power levers, my feet were on the rudder pedals. So as soon as he slid back and he's got his arms stretched out looking like Frankenstein, <laughs> the very next words that is all he said was, you have the plane. And now in a heartbeat, I was just sitting there doing nothing. And now a heartbeat away, I'm the one that's flying the plane. Wow. That is, I, I would have been... Uh probably puckering up a little bit in my seat on that one though. <laughs> and so in this really what this in the corporate world, we have this acronym or this uh, word for it, say acronym, we're talking military stuff um, is employee engagement. And I actually really can't stand the word, even though it's realities are very serious, especially uh, in corporate America. And we consistently talk about how they've done this Gallup poll every single year and typically somewhere around 70% of people in the United States, 89% worldwide hate their jobs. Not dislike, not hate them. They hate what they do every day. Now, if you look at employee, um, if you break down those numbers of, they did another study of engagement specifically and 53 percent of people are actively disengaged and 30 13% are I know it was 53% are disengaged 13% are 
actively disengaged. Think about that. That's the group that now is working against you. They hate being there so much, right? So 66%, what does that do to a company's ability to succeed? And to me, the passenger syndrome that you're talking about um, and disengagement is more of an issue because they're not being either trained properly or most importantly it's why we teach the hoodoo method because you can apply the hoodoo contextually to every single one of these things and so you know this is kind of what i like to say the soft skills right to be aware of something so that you can proactively work around it but when 66 percent of people are disengaged in their work how do you get anything done okay i you can have a soapbox now. <laughs> I don't feel passionately about that at all. <laughs> no. And you know what? We're going to move on to the next one, I think. Uh, Sounds the, good. The next one is the hidden agenda. And what this is, you have something, you have a reason for doing something that you're not sharing with the group, and it is not in line with the goals of everybody else. You have some hidden agenda. And this can be, you know, very large, you know, you can think of corporate uh, espionage and those type things. But even on a much smaller scale, on a simpler scale, this could be, you know what, you've got a late afternoon meeting, you've got a three o'clock or four o'clock start time on a meeting, and you want to get home to your kid's recital. Your kids mm -hmm. doing a piano recital. So in the back of your mind, you don't care about that meeting. You don't care yeah. about uh, choosing the best solution. You don't care about uh, making the best things happen. You just want to, uh, whatever you can to make that meeting end so you can get home to go to your kid's recital. And that'd be a hidden agenda. Yep, 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 yep. That happens all the time probably. Or, and you don't, and that's one of the great things I actually do love about the military, if everyone on the call here, are uh, listening on the podcast um, has you know been around military individuals or are a military brat themselves. My dad was in for I've 24 years. Um, my father-in-law was in for 30 plus years. Kevin, uh, you know, I just have a lot of people that I know um, that are in the military, and actually, two of my bonus kids are in the military as well. And so I love how they let you then say, hey, my kids has something in family time. Well, in corporate America, depends on the culture, you know, that would be looked down upon if you, you know, had to get your, to your kids recital. And that's not every company. It's gotten so much better even than when I was younger. But if you talk to our parents about that, you could have a whole bunch of people with a hidden agenda because they don't want to speak up to say, hey, I've got this thing, right? And so that, again, is about opening that culture up. And the military is the best, I think, at that when it's, if you got a sick kid, people understand, right? Yes. If you need to get home to your family, people understand, which is pretty cool. Okay. Uh, last one we want to talk about today is uh, what we call accommodation syndrome. Okay. And this one's a little more in depth, a little harder to understand than the hidden agenda. Now, the accommodation syndrome, what this is about, it, it's you're decreasing arousal to a stimulus uh, because uh, uh, okay, uh, English, please. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's be it, you accommodate something. Okay, is what happens as you continually do something that's risky. The more you do it, the more times you do something that has some inherent risk, the more you uh, the lead. Uh, the more you're willing to do it, like it's not, it doesn't yeah. feel risky anymore. Exactly. You don't perceive the risk near as much because you've been doing it several times. Ooh, a lot of people did that back in the, the, when the um, crash in 2008, 
they were so used to buying these big commercial buildings and this and that that never they couldn't they couldn't lose they did it so many times and then all of a sudden the timing of the market they just went down um, because it inherently buying a hundred million dollar piece of property is risky after you've done it 20 30 times and you've made money it seems like it's less risky right exactly makes sense well this reminds me of the innovation area of doing this there's so many different companies out there especially right now with the decentralization that technology has brought companies where you know whoever had the most money always won before now it's whoever takes care of your customer and can build an app can take over like look at the hotel industry you know airbnb dominated that and they don't own one piece of real estate right um and i think of companies like kodak who created the digital camera but they didn't want it to take away from their other business so they sold off their ip well that's why they are gone right taxi industry uber did the same thing they don't it, taxis were expensive the process was horrible right and then all of a sudden they take that industry and not only do they take it over they grew it so they launched in san francisco and the taxi industry was a million dollars per year and they grew it to a, a an industry that was a million or 10 million per year utilizing uber and so they not only you know changed the course of the industry um, they actually grew the market which is kind of unique because you know we always talk about tam and well, i won't get into all that but to actually have something that's so valuable that it, it grows an industry because of innovation. So the accommodation syndrome, yes, it, 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 it's, it's definitely can be used that, hey, you've done this, it's risky, it's risky, it's risky, and your inherent thought of it is, oh, it's easy, and so I can just keep on doing it. But if you look at like blockbusters the same way, with innovation, they thought they were too big to fail. That, so they, they had had their you know, 10,000 stores forever, and guess what, there's one open. Right. And, it, and we teach this in our training that, uh, you know, the, the way they stayed open was an innovative way of staying open, which is you can only go and rent DVDs that you can't access streaming live. Um, and so I think innovation is a really good one to look at in business for the accommodation syndrome uh, and running businesses. Uh, like if you're growing by acquisition, I've seen that. Or if you do a turnarounds, people that go in and do turnarounds and they're fixing something up, even a house for sale, you know, flipping homes. After they've done it so many times, they think, oh, you know what? They don't take into consideration like $100 million sounds like funny money. Like it just sounds like some other different day, right? Yeah, Versus you want a real good example of that? Let's look at the United States government. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about serious money. Yeah. Definitely. That's awesome. Well, these are so good. I know we can't get through all 10. That's why we are breaking this up into a four part series now. And we'll go through the next five. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pull some solutions out uh, in the final part four of this four part series. So um, thanks so much, Kevin, for your time here today in how to work as a team like a boss. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.